All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining. I am talking with Dr. Sean McDowell about what I think is uh, like legitimately one of the biggest, most hit, hit home issues that every Christian is going to face in their life today. As a youth pastor for 13 years um, and doing youth ministry for even longer, this is probably the number one reason I saw people falling away, major failing in their, in their walk with Christ or stumbling in their understanding of God. And it has to do with the topics of... Um, ro romance, intimacy, um, gender, sex, like all those types of issues rolled up into one thing. And Dr. Sean McDowell, my guest, he has just written a book on this topic called Chasing Love. And what's the full title of your book? Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. Yeah. Yes. And that's that's a good way to, to put it. Sex, love, and relationships in a confused. I, I just like the I like the subtitle already. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so thanks for joining us, everybody. I appreciate you guys being there. I don't know if we'll have time for Q and A stuff like that later, but we'll, we'll, I just want to get right to what I think is the most valuable stuff we've got because the and Sean, tell me what you think about this. It seems to me that the New Testament is very serious about getting our hearts and minds right and pure as it comes to issues related to human sexuality and purity in relationships. And this is something that, you know, this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Like this is like the one example of here's God's clear will in this passage, you know, and um, it, it, it's, it's heavy on my heart. Uh, what, what's the reason why you've decided to focus on this book? Well, first off, I agree with that. When you look at all the sin lists in the New Testament, amongst other sins, Pornea or sexual immorality is always mentioned. And when students ask me what's God's will for my life, I cite the verse that you mentioned. This is God's will for your life, your sanctification, that you avoid sexual immorality. So that's not to say sexual immorality is the worst sin. I think idolatry is, but the Bible takes it very, very seriously. So the motivation for this was a few things. One is True Love Waits since 1993 has been one of the largest campaigns of teaching sexual purity to students. And they mm -hmm. came to me and asked me if I would help them with a curriculum in the book of the latest incarnation. So that's where the idea came from. But the reason I did it is I grew up in the in the 80s and my dad, Josh McDowell, led the first global sexual purity campaign called Why Wait mm -hmm. when I'm like 11, 12, 13 years old. So I grew up hearing this message that later True Love Waits picked up on and adapted, changed a little bit. And then when this opportunity came up, I was like, gosh, I've been writing on this. I've been speaking on this. I've been thinking about it a ton. And I also think the conversation has changed and maybe I could bring some unique kind of worldview angles to this. So it just felt like a win-win. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to say this is what I liked about your book as I was kind of like perusing through the chapters. I got like an advanced copy, <laughs> which is kind of fun. Uh, but as I'm looking through it, I, there's a few things I'll mention I loved, and then I'm going to ask you to maybe talk about those individually. But <clears throat> one is that fairly early on, you start with the sexual ethic of Jesus. I mm -hmm. thought that was brilliant. I thought that was super important that you did it there at the beginning, mm -hmm. and that that's how you did it. But you also have um, stuff on myths about sex, and then your um, your stuff on pornography, cohabitation, divorce, homosexuality, um, same-sex marriage as different issues, transgender issues, all these kinds of things that are very important for us to work through in a, in a thoughtful, careful fashion. We're in the midst of a culture that is just sort of gut feeling their way through all these issues. And in my experience, now I, I, I wasn't a Christian when I was like 11 years old. It was, it was mm -hmm. when I first went to church at the age of 12, a friend just invited me in junior high 
and I just any reason to get out of the home at the time because of <laughs> my my home <laughs> was was like I'll go sure. And when I first went to like a true love waits type thing, I was a teenager and I didn't even know what I was going to, right? Because I'm just oblivious, right? I, I just know like the youth group's going to this thing and I got invited. Okay, I'll go. And when I realized how strictly they wanted me to behave and it was at the very end, they're like, this isn't just about being a virgin when you're married. This is about purity in your life da, 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 and all these things. And I went, wait a minute. Right, because because the, the culture I've grown up with so far is like the opposite of that, and mm. um, it was it was it was something that was foreign to me and strange to me and seemed like too high of a cost to me, and I think it's nice if we can realize that this is where a lot of people are also coming from, um, because they just don't have a biblical worldview on the topic. Yeah, I think that's fair. One of the reasons I started with Jesus is that the Christian biblical ethic consistently gets labeled bigoted and fundamentalist and harmful, Mm -hmm. but people still like Jesus, (laughs) at least in our culture as a whole. They want Jesus on their side. So I thought if we're going to try to make a compelling case for sexual ethic, let's go to Jesus. But Jesus also has the perfect balance of grace and truth. And I think what you're hinting at in the past, the way sexual purity was often taught was, here's rules and regulations, do this, don't do that, rather than saying, What's the heart of God? How has God designed us to live? What does it actually mean to love people? What is purity? And why are we called to purity within the ethic of Jesus? So that's why I framed it that way. Now, the book as a whole, the first part, it's kind of three sections you probably noticed. The first part is like basically stripping away some of the faulty ideas I think Christians and non-Christians have about the sexual ethic of Jesus. We're confused about the nature of love about the nature of freedom, about what it means to be forgiven. And then the middle part, I shift to what's the purpose of sex, singleness, and marriage. And then, like you said, issues say um, sex abuse, pornography, divorce, LGBTQ conversation. Then those come in the latter third once we talk through what is the sexual ethic of Jesus. Yeah. Now, um, we could talk about so many things right now. Uh, <laughs> what I wanted to... To start with, though, if you can, is what do you think the landscape is? Like as you're writing this book and you're thinking about your audience, you're thinking about the way people are perceiving these issues today. Can you describe how that is, you know, not just how you're doing it differently, but how people are perceiving it today, which is informing your approach? Does that make sense, yeah. my question there? Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. I'm going to assume that a lot of Christian and non-Christian kids actually view the seth- sexual ethic of the church pretty similarly. Most of them think it's outdated. They're probably at least softly affirming within the church and almost certainly outside of the church. They don't understand why on earth God would say have sex reserved for one man and one woman for life. It feels antiquated and it doesn't make sense. They're bringing in a different view of what love is. So with that, and I actually think a different view of what freedom is. So some of the first two chapters in the book, I'm helping students compare and contrast a cultural view of freedom, which basically is do whatever you want without restraint. If it feels good and you're not hurting somebody, at least somebody who doesn't consent, then it's fine. A biblical view of freedom is very, very different. It's living consistently with your design with restraint. In fact, a biblical worldview would say restraint actually sets you free. So I contrast that. I make a contrast with love. I think in our culture is basically, again, doing Whatever feels right to you, and if you make a choice for yourself, I have to affirm that choice. 
Whereas the biblical worldview says, no, it's not what you feel or think about yourself. A biblical worldview is actually acting in your objective best, whether you recognize it or not. So I'm trying to frame things differently for students. But one thing I'm not trying to do, Mike, is you said when you went to youth group, you felt like this feels so hard. I'm not trying to lower the bar. I actually start off the book by saying, look, Jesus calls us to something hard and tough. It's actually easier to accept the narrative of our culture, but it's only difficult things that are valuable. I mean, you know, I teach high school part time and I spend an entire class period asking my students, tell me something in life you value. And kids were saying things like learning to play the piano and getting the D1 baseball scholarship. And at the end, I said, what do all these things have in common? And one student finally says, they're all things we've sacrificed for. I was like, that's right valuable things are worth sacrificing for. So Jesus does not give the easiest way. I'm not going to sugarcoat this for kids, but I think it's good and it's true and it's ultimately the most fulfilling way to live. So that's how I frame it. Yeah, and I I appreciate that. And for those who are listening, if you don't agree, if you're thinking like, no, great, here's more of these conservative Bible-thumping Christians who are going to be pushing this like old sexual ethic stuff, just listen, just take you know, be open-minded enough to hear out the things that we're going to be sharing right now and consider these things, especially if you're one who calls yourself a Christian and you perhaps have fallen into the sort of uh, God is gray kind of mentality of thinking um, that there's actual sort of like a piety or a righteousness about being very open and, and liberal with your sexual behaviors, that you actually think this is like a a positive thing, an empowering thing, and a wonderful thing. So we, let's start with your, the myths. You you unpack some myths, if that's all right with you. Um, sure. To address people who come from those perspectives. One of the myths is in chapter 12, you said that, that sex is not a big deal. What do you mean by that? Well, if you kind of go back to the launch of the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s, I remember reading an article years ago that was kind of saying sex is not a big deal. It doesn't matter. It's just another bodily function like having a glass of water. And this is an attempt to kind of demystify and say sex doesn't mean anything. But I think of it like if you take a beach ball and push it underwater, it's going to pop up because of the nature of the beach ball. So this is a lie about the nature of sex. And when our culture pushes that down, it's going to pop up and we're going to see why. So an example I give in the book is from the movie Passengers. I think it was 2016 with Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence. And I saw an interview about the movie. It's basically about um, – I actually haven't seen it, but I read about it. They're in this yeah. spaceship going like 90 years in the future, and they wake up accidentally, just the two of them, in the middle of this space journey. And they evidently fall in love, and there's a sex scene in this movie. At the time, it was the first scene that Jennifer Lawrence had done. So I'm re watching this interview with Chris Pratt, and he's asked by the host, and this was put on USA Today like an entertainment weekly interview. And the host says, what's it like being the male to care for like the female on set? And my first thought was, you're not supposed to ask the question that way today, but you know, I digress. And he, Chris Pratt, who's a wonderful actor, feels uncomfortable. You can see it on his face. And he says, well – one thing I do is I make sure that there's not too many people on set and I just ask her if she's okay throughout the scene. I thought, well, that's interesting. And I thought, if sex is not a big deal, why did the host ask them about that scene? Why didn't the host on Entertainment Weekly say, Chris Pratt, what was it like when you sat down and you had a drink with Jennifer Lawrence? How do you protect and care for her during that scene? 
And the answer is because we all know that having a glass of water is nothing like having sex with somebody. We know it. So I did a little further research and it turns out that, that Jennifer Lawrence got herself drunk for one scene that she was going to act out in that movie. Guess what scene it was? It was the sex sex scene. And she called her mom the night before. And I have all this documented. She says something to the effect of, Mom, I've never felt so vulnerable. I I get like teary-eyed thinking of this because I have a daughter. And she said, can you just tell me everything is going to be okay? Yeah. Like I hear that and my heart breaks. And I think she's been told this lie that sex doesn't mean anything. But her heart and body tells her it's meant for commitment. It's mm-hmm. a private between two people, and it does mean something. Oh yeah, it does. It you know another another analogy of this that hits me is is our visceral reaction to rape <clears throat> that we think the rapist is like this horrible horrible person, and 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 then the victim is this <coughs> really Sorry. injured, hurt, suffering individual. And it's like, well, this is only true if sex is a really, really big deal. Mm. And it's not like, just that human will yeah. is a big deal because there's other things where somebody violates your free will and we don't respond the way we do with rape, right? This is like because because human intercourse is just this really lofty and big <clears throat> thing. And those those things have the highest potential for good and the, and the greatest potential for, for evil just by nature of them being in that high place. Look, the whole Me Too movement puts to a lie that sex doesn't mean anything because it's not just about physical abuse. As terrible as that is, there's people saying I was violated in a deep personal way. So that's the first myth or one of the myths you deal with in this book, sex, that sex is not a big deal. Um, the next one is that sex is merely a private act. Sex is mm-hmm. merely a private act. So what do you think is meant by that and then how do you respond to it? So we've all heard the phrase, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. In fact, perhaps one of the most successful advertising campaigns in the history of advertising. Mm -hmm. The idea when it comes to sex, people say what happens in the bedroom stays in the bedroom. Well, that's not true on a number of counts. Number one is sexually transmitted diseases. There are 20 million new cases in the U.S. every year. Half of them are from those 15 to 24 years old. Not only does that affect somebody physically in their life when they leave the bedroom, but there's a financial cost for society based on what is supposedly a private act. So it's not private. By the way, again, as I document in the book, I can't remember what year it was. It might have been 2015, but 94 infants died because their mothers had a sexually transmitted disease disease that they acquired and ended up taking their life during birth. So that puts to a lie that it's a private act. Second, mm-hmm. what happens in privacy results in kids. Sex is a baby-making act. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that doesn't always result, but every single one of us are here living our lives outside of the bedroom, every single one of us. Every breath we take testifies to the fact that what our parents did in privacy did not remain in the bedroom and carries out into the public life. And the third thing I would say is, just as what we talked about last time, is that when people say sex is nothing, we know it means something. When you're that vulnerable with somebody, that shapes your character, that shapes your memories, that shapes who you are, and we take our character outside of the bedroom. So sex is meant to be experienced 
in the privacy of a husband and wife, but it doesn't stay there. For those three reasons, you could probably come up with more. It affects everybody. Yeah, and you know what? Um, <clears throat> to me, this Christians and the Christian view is the romantic view. And I think that this is evidenced by how much we think this is such a big deal and how beautiful and precious it is and how important it is to be protected and kept in its proper context. How we, we don't see it just as a private act. We see it as this like this um, lofty act, uh, this, this amazing and wonderful thing, and which is why you don't want it to be. It's the same reason why I don't want to take this beautiful work of art and then just smear poop on it. It's like because it matters what you do with really important things. And so we don't put it just in any context. I just think Christianity makes me more of a romantic. I, I wasn't really mm. as much one without my Christian worldview. In fact, I didn't even believe in marriage uh, when I was younger. I thought, what's the point of marriage? It just seems like the risk isn't worth the reward. And when I looked in scripture and I saw, wait a minute, the marriages I've seen fail have failed because they didn't do this. Like if, mm. I, if, if I did this, it would, it would honor God and it would work. And, and then another step further was to say, and even if it didn't work, I would honor God. And that mm. in itself has this incredible lofty value so that even a difficult marriage where one spouse honors God is like this worthwhile, beautiful thing. But I, I don't know. I just feel like it makes me a romantic to be a Christian. <laughs> uh, you know what? I do too. One of, the, one of the tasks of this book was not just to show that the Christian worldview is true and good when it comes to sexuality, but it's beautiful. Because I think a lot of people think it's false and it's immoral and yeah. it's ugly. Yeah. And mm -hmm. there's a number of ways I try to do this in the book, but just make a contrast between, say, Hugh Hefner, the way he lived his life, who obviously founded the Playboy philosophy, died recently, and the way he just used women over and over throughout his life, just no restraint whatsoever. And I've talked to a lot of people damaged from the Playboy philosophy. And compare that to my father, who's one of the most outspoken critics of the sexual revolution going back to the 60s and 70s. My dad is in his 80s. He has stayed faithful to my mom for 40-some, almost 50 years of marriage. And there's something beautiful. They still date. They still spend time together. Every time he's gone, he's like, I just miss your mom. Yeah. And I think there's something beautiful about that that people have to see. And by the way, one of the early questions I ask in the book is I'll ask students, I say, imagine that everybody followed the sexual ethic of Jesus. Would the world be better yeah. or would it be worse? Okay, so I love this. I love this in the book. I yeah. saw this and I thought this is this is like what I – I did a series on the Ten Commandments years ago with the youth. And I was like, what would the society be like if people followed these rules? You know, and Great. And you do this with the issue of, of sexual ethics. So break it down for us. And guys, this is not like fantasy time. Like this is reality. If people would do what Jesus, you know, wants them to do in this area of their lives, how would it impact the world? One of the amazing things that I do when I look back at Jesus, especially compared to other religious figures, he was far ahead of the Me Too movement, showed nothing but dignity and love and care for women. There's no question about it. So I started thinking, wait a minute, what is the sexual ethic of Jesus? And what would the world be like objectively if everybody followed it? Now, the sexual ethic of Jesus is that sex is reserved for one man and one woman who become one flesh for one lifetime. Now, with that said, Jesus also holds up singleness and marriage as two equally 
beautiful and God-honoring ways of serving the Lord and using your sexuality. Amen. Both That's a mouthful to say that, just <laughs> singleness and marriage. Maybe we can come back to that as well. I, I, yeah. think, I think we need to, because that's where yeah. certain sexual purity campaigns in the past fell short. Mm-hmm. But that's his design for sexuality. So if everybody lived that, there would be no abortions. There'd be no pornography or victims of pornography. There'd be no crude sexual humor. There'd be no sexually transmitted disease. Kids would grow up in a wanted home. There'd be no fatherless homes. There'd be no dads trading in their wives for a younger trophy wife. I mean, you just look at society and it would be objectively better on all accounts if people just lived out the sexual teachings of Jesus. And I think at the heart of it, one of the things that my parents taught me is they would say, God's commands are for your good. Like Deuteronomy 10, when Moses gives the commandments, he says, honor the Lord God with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and follow the commandments which are given for your good. David says in Psalms 119, he says, I love the law of the Lord. Now, David didn't always follow it. That's a separate issue. But he knew God's law was good and would set him free. So people at the heart, I think a young person is going to have to know that God is good. He's worthy of trust. And that his commands are for their good if they're ever going to live out a biblical sexual ethic. Yeah. Now, let me let me hit you with something that, uh, again, this is like my years of experience doing youth ministry. And I know you've done a lot. Actually, the first time we met, which I don't think I don't think you remember, <laughs> was at a youth camp up at. Um, really? Yeah. Up in. Um, goodness, where was it? Anyway, it was in California, some youth camp. Oh, and my goodness. You did a teaching on like what's God's will for your life and all this stuff. And then afterwards. Some people were all just kind of hanging around and we were talking about the emergent church because back then it was the emergent church. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they all just sort of emerged their way right out of the church, though. So we don't really talk about that. That's them true. Um, at any rate, they were talking about the emergent church. I remember you said this is just side note, just reminiscing. I was thinking about this earlier. Somebody was saying something about it. And, I, and then I, I was listening for like 10 minutes and I chimed in and I said, yeah, my problem with the emergent church is they have a lot of good criticisms and a lot of bad solutions. So they have proper criticisms about the church and a lot of bad solutions for them. And then you went like, hmm, can I get your email? And you sent me one of your first really? books. Yeah. No way. I, that's awesome. <laughs> and you sent me one of your first books. And I was just so like like weirded out by the idea of like, you were like, give me feedback. What do you think about this? That I, I think I just never even responded to you. You know what? I thought about that for a decade, but I finally got over it that you didn't respond. I'm but, you know, you I'm good to, now. We can be friends. You were able to. I know it was really heavy on your heart. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. I did not know that. You've never told me that. Yeah, yeah. I was just, I think I was just nervous, which is, anyway. So, uh, true story. But, but okay, in my, in my experience as youth ministry, uh, doing youth ministry, the thing that if I look at the heart of kids, as I talked over and over again about sexual purity and marriage and God's design and waiting and and staying pure, not just not having sex, but trying to stay pure. The thing that I think I kept watching people stumble over is the question of, in the mind of the student, do I really trust that that way is the best way? Mm-hmm. Do I really believe? I mean, I'm just being honest. The real question Christians were having is, do I really believe God? that this mm-hmm. is the better way because these other things that I want to do sure seem like a good idea to me. And um, what do you think about that? I think you're absolutely correct on that. And by the way, I'll tell you what's so interesting to me is when you go back to the garden, why is God's first command 
not to eat the fruit. I mean, why that command? Seriously, why didn't he say, Adam, don't murder Eve? I mean, that would be easy. It would be intuitive. Yes, Cain kills Abel, but remember, Adam was like pumped when he first saw a human being. Why not make an easy commandment? Why make a commandment that says don't eat fruit, which by the way, it describes it in Genesis as like to the touch and the sight and the senses. There was something appealing about this. And by the way, fruit is made to be eaten. Why that command? And the best answer I can come up with is because God gave that kind of command because he's making sure that Adam and Eve know and make a choice that they can trust him. Yeah. God is inviting them into a relationship, and he is the creator, and they are the creature. So there's inevitably going to be moments where they don't understand God's infinite ways. It doesn't make sense, humanly speaking. And not only does it not make sense, the opposite seems appealing. That's the world that we live in. So the very first command is basically God saying, do you trust me? Will you listen to me? And that's what it takes to have a relationship between an infinite creator and a finite human being. So I think you're right at its heart. And that's, again, at the beginning of the book, I lay out to students. I'm like, who are you listening to? Yeah. Who do you trust? What voices are you allowing into your life? Because that's going to shape everything. Yeah. Who do you believe? <clears throat> do you believe God or not? And that's a serious question to ask. It's almost like there's like this this tipping, you know, like you come to the crest of a hill and you're going to fall one way or the other. And, and it's just, well, I trust God or not. Okay. I, I understand the Christian sexual ethic, but am I going to really trust that? Am I going to really believe God or not? And then it becomes like, wow, this is a real central issue in my walk with the Lord. And so often it's like, will I, will I date non-believers? Will I engage in, in almost sex? Will I engage in, you know, all these types of behaviors because I want to, or will I trust God on this topic? And so then it becomes like, this is pretty central. And, and again, I've seen more people fall from this. As I track back, I go, boy, yeah, they came up with weird theology or maybe they even just denied the faith, but it started with sexual sin over and over and over again that this is the case. I think that's right. At its heart, it's going to be a question of trust. And very early on, a young person is going to have to ask themselves, who's the voice that I'm going to listen to? And that's mm -hmm. why... You know, the temptation by Satan was not to Eve, hey, you had a dream, God doesn't exist. He didn't go like the atheist route. Yeah. They subtly twisted God's word and basically said, did God really say this? God is not out for your best. He's got another agenda and he's keeping something from you. Yeah. That's the exact same temptations all of us, and especially young people are facing today. Yeah. Big time. So <clears throat> let's um, talk, if we can, about some of the major issues that are going on today. And because the scene today is different than it was in the past. I mean, it's even changed in the past 10 years. It, things have been shifting and changing. And one of the biggest areas in that it's changed is the topic of pornography. So pornography used to be um, a man's hidden shame. Mm. And it was something that a man had to generally go out. Maybe some people don't even remember these days <clears throat> that a man generally had to go out and he had to find it somehow. He had to access it somehow. He had to go find these magazines or get access or maybe special paid uh, services, you know, through cable and things like that. But now it's made accessible to like seven year olds with a cell phone. Um, and I don't know how I would have fared if I had grown mm. up today 
given the liberties that my parents gave me, if I had had a cell phone sitting in my room at the age of 11 years old or 12 years old, I mean, I don't know if I would have been okay with that. <laughs> I think that would have been pretty bad for me. But I, I, you know, I was like a teenager when the internet first started to become a popular thing. So what, um, what about this? Like what, what's going on? What, what's your, what do you say? What's your advice on this topic? Pornography, uh, how to think about it, what to do about it? Well, one of the things you point out is, is that a pornography is more available than it was in the past. I've got a list of A's of how the nature of pornography has changed. Number one, more available. Number two, it's also more aggressive. The kind of pornography just one click away for students is just, I mean, it's horrific beyond what anybody can even imagine. And that's changed over the time. It's also, and you hinted at this, in other A's, it's anonymous that someone can seemingly do it in secret without having to go in a place that is public at all. Mm -hmm. So that's why we're seeing a shift. I mean, this Barna study, and this is about four years ago now, but they said the shift in pornography being shameful is so great that now when you look at Gen Zers, at least older Gen Zers, it's considered more of a sin and wrong to not recycle than to look at pornography. I mean, just think about that shift. Yeah. And yeah. that's because of its accessibility. So I think the number one way a young person is learning about uh, learning about sex is through pornography. The problem is, is it sends a script that is very different than a biblical script. Wow. And there's all these expectations in the minds of young people. Doesn't match up with real life. And then they're disappointed. I think, you know, it's amazing to me when we talk about this Me Too movement, all these men taking advantage of women, I don't hear anybody saying, wait a minute, where are they getting these ideas thinking it's okay? And the mm -hmm. answer is in pornography. Even in the Time cover story, which was 2015, 2016, says the amount of aggression and physical abuse and even girls acting as if they enjoy it is ubiquitous in pornography. And yet because people have this worldview, this is, well, it's not a big deal. We have the liberty to do it. It doesn't harm anybody. People develop these sexual scripts, and it's no secret that they're going to affect the way they treat people. So the bottom line problem – I can't even say the bottom line because I have so many issues with, with pervasive pornography yeah. – is that rather than teaching to love somebody, it teaches you to use somebody. That's what it does. I mean St. Augustine said we're supposed to love people and use money, but we love money and we use people. Mm. Pornography turns somebody into an object – that we use. In fact, it was John Paul II. He said something effective in the theology of the body, I believe it was. He said the problem with pornography is not that it shows much, it's that it shows too little. I thought, wait a minute, that's counterintuitive. His point was that in pornography, sexuality is stripped from its relational, emotional, spiritual context, and it's reduced to being just <clears throat> physical. And therefore sends an emaciated view of sexual relationships that shapes the script of this generation that has devastating consequences in the way people live out the relationships and even beyond. So what are some of the consequences that 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 would you, you you would say are measurable in our culture as a result of pornography? I mean you mentioned a couple things, but on a more individual level, do you have have you done research on that topic? Well, if you read the Time magazine. There's quite a few studies of men who come on there and they say, you know, it per affected our performance. 
that when we were with a real girl, it's like nobody matches up to these images. So I became impotent. This is what a lot of people say in that article and beyond. So I think that's one. Uh, there's actually another study that that says there's a link between looking at pornography and objectifying other people. You can actually show a strong link there. There's an article from 2015 by four researchers, four scholars, and they weren't doing new research and they're studying adolescents. So probably those like maybe 13 to 17, if I remember correctly. And they just basically said, what does all the data show about the effects of pornography? And they said a list of things. I listed out 10. I can't remember them all, but things like more distracted by thoughts of sex. You're more likely to have a lower self image. You're more likely to be engaged in casual sex, more likely to be engaged in all different kinds of sexual acts. I mean, the list went on and on and on. Now, the difficulty is, is people say, well, that's just correlational. It's not causal. So it is difficult purely in terms of studies to narrow down and say this one fact equals that fact. Yeah. But I think the data overall is strong enough, especially when you just look at the message of pornography and the range of testimonies that we have. In fact, one thing I did actually put in the book, come to think of it, was the testimonies of a number of former porn stars who say, let me tell you what was really happening on scene, on set. Let me tell you what happened to my body. Let me tell you the way I was treated. So I think there's enough tangible consequences of it. But I would argue even if there's not – it's still wrong because it involves using somebody, not loving somebody. Yeah, and and there's a there's an element of this where I just say, as a as a Christian who believes in Jesus, who trusts the Bible, that I, I look at all this all of those facts that you're sharing as verification of things that I already know to be true because of Scripture. I mean, I I look at this stuff and say, sin grows corrupt. Uh, there's a there's a progression of sin and and depravity that increases. He who commits a sin becomes a slave of sin. Ephesians says that we grow corrupt. That old man gets increasingly corrupt. And so whatever sins we yield ourselves to, we give ourselves to, those things are like a cancer that takes plant and it grows and it infects other areas. We think of ourselves as having pockets of carnality, but they never stay in their pockets and they affect our lives and they impact us in greater ways, in ways that we didn't understand. And then one day... We're reaping the whirlwind. We're reaping what we've sown, and we're and we're so confused because we've just been so polluted that we don't understand what's happening. And yet, years back, there was just the clear teaching of Scripture saying, "Don't do that; it will be bad." Mm. <laughs> and, and this is this is I think that we have to have more self control than any generation before us because it's mm -hmm. easier than ever before to engage in these things. Purity. So let's talk about what purity is. What when you when I say we have, we have all this self control, like what's the aim? What would you say actual purity is? Typically, somebody would define purity as a lack of any contaminants. And I think if something is pure, then it does lack contaminants. But I remember if if you actually think about the concept of purity, I think the best explanation is when something is being used according to its design, then it's pure. That's what's meant by purity. How are we supposed to think? How are we supposed to use our bodies? How are we supposed to treat other people? When we do the way that God intended, then we're acting in a pure fashion. And I think that's powerful because it brings the question back to, is there a design and a purpose for God's plan for sex? In fact, this is the ultimate question. 
if there is no God, then there is no purpose for sex. We get to invent sex, invent marriage, whatever we want it to mean. But if there's a God who's created us and given us the gift of sexuality that Scripture says is beautiful and blessed us with this, then somebody is pure when they use their bodies and their minds in the way that God intended them to. So what's the difference then <clears throat> for a lot of people that they, they think, um, and I thought this too, when I was, again, I was like, my sanctification was in slow motion. <laughs> I was a teenager and, uh, um, and I, I thought, oh, so you just don't have sexual intercourse before you're married, but there's like a whole list of other things that I thought were probably <laughs> get this in my mind, me being pretty self-controlled if I was only doing these things. Um, and what, what's your response to that? Because you have a myth in your in your book that you cover called sexual intercourse is all that matters for purity. Mm. I think one of the unfortunate things that came out of what's called purity culture from the past is that the highest goal was to be a virgin, meaning you don't have sex. You don't you're not sexually active. Some of the opposite sex now that, mm -hmm. you know, some people would say we can have oral sex but you didn't actually have sex with your virgin. You look at porn, you can mutually masturbate, etc. But as long as you're not actually having sex, you're a virgin. So we made the goal like to be a virgin. And then so if it's somebody virginity wasn't, culture. it's, it's it virginity was, culture instead of purity culture, actually. Yeah, that that's a fair way to put it. So you could do all those other sexual things, mm. but be a technical virgin and be considered pure. On the flip side, somebody blows it and repents and gets restored by Christ, they still get the second place ribbon. I mean, something is profoundly broken there. So I think we need to define sex more carefully in one sense. So there's a reason why I'll say to students, I'll say, look, is it wrong to smack somebody on the butt? And I go, well, depends on the context, right? I mean, if there's a coach who just hits a player and goes out there, I mean, you don't see that as much today, but in principle, it's like, get out there, play good defense. I mean, I it's never not, liked that, but. Right? <laughs> I never liked it, but I'm not going to define different. that as sexual in yeah. sports, right? Versus a guy who does that to a girl or vice versa. Same kind of touch, very different intention. So sex actually is an entire process that in one sense begins with a certain look with somebody, a certain kind of touch that culminates in, in you know the sexual climax, so to speak. And when we just define that end, it's like, wait a minute, you're ignoring sexual touch. I mean, they call it oral sex because it's actually sex. They call it anal sex mm -hmm. because it is sexual activity. So one thing we have to do is just help students understand and think about what is meant by sex, what's the purpose of it. And one of the biggest questions I get asked is, how far is too far? Always mm -hmm. get asked that question. And I start walking them through this process of sex, and I say, the further you go down, the more your body is pointing you towards this natural sexual climax, the harder it becomes, not impossible, mm -hmm. but the harder it becomes to stop. And we just haven't really helped students to think that way. Yeah. Purity. <clears throat> and pure, you mentioned purity of mind, not just of body. And I think that that is where the, the body stuff is is often the result of the lack of purity in the mind. Um, it, it starts here, I yield in my head and my heart to it, then eventually it plays out in the physical body. What advice would you have for somebody today who is, um, whether they're married or single, 
but they're dealing with all the media that we deal with today. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just they're watching TV shows that have just more regularly come to incorporate sexual images and innuendos, even commercials on TV or or, or that are pre-rolling ads on YouTube videos and stuff that are are pretty risque in a sense. What What's your counsel to somebody who wants to have purity in their mind? So I, I would say a few things, and you're right. It's really tough today because it's nonstop seemingly coming from everywhere. One thing is to be intentional out front and ask yourself, where are the places that you just deeply struggle? Mm-hmm. So for my family, I've got young kids. I finally was like, you know what? I'm canceling Netflix. I don't need this. There's basically porn on this. I don't want it on my phone in that temptation, let alone my kids. So I canceled it. Now, I can't cancel everything. But try to make some intentional steps to be like, you know what, I'm just not going to watch that because I know the garbage that's going to come in. And I can justify it in my mind 50 million ways we all can, but I know it's not right and encouraging me to think about things that I shouldn't think about. So that's one thing. The second thing is I would just share with somebody, if you struggle with this and you keep it inside, what can happen is this process of shame where, oh, I should have done that, should have looked at that, I feel bad, I'm going to try harder this time. And then when your moment where you're just tired or you're weak or you're hurting, it happens again. And then you promise again. And either eventually some people just chuck their faith. I mean there's research that shows that porn addiction leads some people to just give up on their faith because they feel like God isn't present and it doesn't work. Or you just lived a defeated, shameful life. Mm-hmm. You know, Scripture talks about it. I think it's in First Second Corinthians chapter 4. It's like bringing our sins to light is what brings freedom. Mm-hmm. So even just telling people, hey, I've wrestled with this and I'm trying, gets that just kind of the weight off, so to speak, yeah. and it invites a kind of accountability into your life. And then just remember God's grace is so big. I think one of the biggest things young people wrestle with is just especially because you said there's such a require, requirement for self-control. Yeah. And what makes that harder is we're having higher levels, especially with this quarantine, of loneliness and depression and mental health, it's such an easy, natural way to try to soothe yourself, so to speak. So it's like this perfect storm. Mm -hmm. What I found is when, you know, one girl emailed me a while ago and she just said something like, I'm hooked on porn, what do I do? And I said, I can't get an email exchange with a girl, but let me just say one thing, God loves you. And she emailed me like three years later and she's like, that wrecked me because I thought I was so dirty I thought I was so bad. I couldn't tell anybody. Mm. And that grace, for some reason, God used that in her life. Amen. You know what? It's And this is to me, Christian, <clears throat> Christianity gives us extremes. And we shouldn't minimize the extremes. When I am down here because I realize like my sin is so horrible, the tendency of the world is to say, it's not that bad. But I think the Christian faith would say, oh, it is act- absolutely that bad, maybe even worse than you realize. But the love of God is so much mm-hmm. higher. And mm-hmm. to let the extremes be there and say, this this leads me to a place of deep gratitude and, and appreciation for the grace of Christ and the peace of God, where I go, I have nothing to commend myself to you, Lord. I I deserve your judgment. I, I offer nothing of my own goodness here. I just cling to the cross of Christ and I know that you know, if any of us sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the righteous one, and he's my advocate. And I, I just lay it all upon him. And there's that. There's a beauty in that, and a humility in that. 
um, to recognize that. Yeah, that there, if there, if you think there's a sin that's just too wicked to be forgiven, mm-hmm. you have. You, it's not that you've. It's not that you think sin is worse than it is. It's that you think grace is less than it is. That's that's what it mm-hmm. is. But um, but anyway, let me hit you with a few things. Here's a few different cool. topics. Um, singleness. What is it you want people to know about singleness that you feel has been missed in the past? One of the messages that was given earlier in different sexual purity campaigns was if you just protect yourself now and don't have sex, God will reward you with that spouse who will make you happy and you'll have endless sexual bliss. This was <laughs> it's it's called the sexual prosperity gospel and I think Wow. A lot of Christians who would say I'm against the prosperity gospel turn around and promoted this, I think, without realizing it. Mm-hmm. And what that did is that means some people got married and then the marriage didn't work out like they hope, either sexually or beyond, or there's a whole range of single people looking back going, I thought I did everything right. Then you're disillusioned with God. I mean, I heard I heard a, a well-known pastor say one time, he said, if you want your life to count for Christ— Never stop pursuing an intimate relationship with your spouse and love your kids. That is wonderful advice if you're married. Mm-hmm. But without realizing it sends the message, if you're not married, your life can't count for Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's not intended. Yeah. But it's not biblically balanced. Mm-mm. Biblically, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, marriage is a beautiful way to honor the Lord. And so is singleness. And what's interesting is they both have ups and they both have downs. They both have a kind of freedom and they both have certain kinds of restrictions. And so I actually, I had a girl, I was printing out a chapter in my book and she was single, worked at the private Christian school I work at, saw the chapter, read it. And she said to me, she's like, I just, I was in tears because nobody talks about this. She's in her fifties and singles. And was like, why don't we talk about the beauty of singleness, but the challenges of singleness. And so one of the ways, this is a subtle way of pushing back for me on formal purity cultures is singleness was usually not even talked about. If it was, it was like an appendix at the end. So when I get to the middle part of the book, I talk about God's design for sex. Mm -hmm. And then I talk about singleness. And then I talk about marriage afterwards, arranging Mm -hmm. it intentionally that way to highlight the goodness and beauty of singleness. And by the way, there's a lot of people, especially today with the LGBTQ question, who have been told, you gotta get married to be fulfilled, but you Uh, especially can't get married. And it sends such a damaging, unbiblical message. I'm so with you on this. I remember teaching, and sometimes I'm a little naive uh, in certain ways, (laughs) maybe in a lot of ways, but um, but on the topic of, of singleness, I was teaching, I'm going through first Corinthians, I hit first Corinthians seven and I'm just teaching. So singleness is actually a greater thing spiritually than marriage. In some ways, it allows you to serve God in a greater capacity. In fact, it seems preferable, preferable for the sake of the kingdom that you remain single. And, and not that everybody needs to do that, but that's the status of singleness. And I remember people coming up like, I never heard that before. How did, and I'm just like, just read the book. Like it's right there in the text. And I, I remember when I decided to get married. I got married at the age of 30. I was single for a long time. Mm. And the decision to pursue my spouse, my wife, I had to think, this is going to cost the kingdom. I mm. will be able to serve less because wow. I rightfully need to take care of my spouse, whereas I would only need to be concerned with taking care of the body. And I, I decided to make that compromise because I wanted this. And I knew it was still okay. It wasn't a sin, but it was a, it was a cost 
analysis. Okay, this is there's benefits to it, but there will be a cost. And and arguably, we need more teaching on singleness than marriage because more people, everybody has at least a single season. Some people have only a single season; they never get married. That's only, right. Only some people get married, or only at least maybe a percentage. And it's and it's getting less and less as time goes on right now. So I feel like we need more teaching on singleness than uh, than we have ever had before. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. First off, this book is for students, and they're all singles. So everybody speaking to students, they're singles. And probably if they're, say, 15 years old, they're a decade to a decade and a half away from getting married. Mm -hmm. That's a serious single because people are less likely to get married today. If they get married, more likely to get married later. And then people who do get married, death of a spouse an unfortunate divorce. Like chances are, even if you want to get married, you might be single now and you will have a season of singleness in the future. So we need to te yeah. teach on it. But also I think some of our practices need to change. Sometimes in the church, it's like we do a couple things. And some of my friends like Christopher Yuan have told me this so many times. Like if you're single and you're at least 25 plus, it's like, when are you going to get married? Can I hook you up with somebody? Let me connect you. And we're suspicious of you because you're single. Yeah. But even the planning is like we have the marriage events and we have this group and then we have singleness group over there in another building yeah. that just doesn't practically highlight and show the beauty and goodness of singleness. Man, I, I, side note, I worry about how we have s chopped our congregations into special interest groups so thoroughly. I've been worried about that for years. Even as a youth leader, I'm like, is this the right way to do this? I don't even know. I'm not, I'm not sure that the, that the upsides are worth the downsides of it or not. But, uh, not that there isn't effective ministry still happening, but there's costs. Sure. And, and we lose the cohesion of the familiness in some congregations as a result, but that has nothing to do with today. So <laughs> let me, uh, let me throw this at you. A few other specific issues. We're going to talk about uh, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, trans transgender issues. But first, let me ask you cohabitation. What have you got to share about the topic of cohabitation? I had studied and spoken on this times before, but to write this chapter, I was like, you know what? I'm going to really research the data and probably, I guess I'd have to give this a second thought, but certainly at the top, one of the things that surprised me most in researching and writing this book was how clear the statistics are that cohabitation puts you at a disadvantage to have a successful marriage if it in fact leads to marriage. And mm -hmm. that's counterintuitive because especially a lot of the students I talk to feel like you wouldn't buy a car without test driving it. If you live in with somebody, you see, you know, they'll say things like, you see what they look like in the morning. You see if they put the toothpaste away. Like you just see them when they're up and when they're down and you get a sample of what marriage will be like. But the reality is yeah. the very thing that makes marriage work is exactly what's absent in cohabitation and mm -hmm. it's commitment. Commitment. That's so, right, man. There's no back door. Yeah. I, there's it, no decision it, to make. I already made it. You know what? Even times my wife and I are frustrated with each other. I don't feel like I love her and vice versa. There's a sense like we're in this together mm -hmm. and we're going to work this out. And I'm going to stand by you no matter what. That changes everything. So the studies are clear yeah. that if you live with somebody before and you end up getting married, it will put you at a serious disadvantage to have a successful, fulfilling lasting marriage. So Sean, why do people believe 
Why do people believe that that they have to try him out first? They got to test drive the car. Why do they think that they have to have lots of sexual partners as a way of figuring out what they like? Like this is a strong cultural opinion that exists in our culture. What do you think has, if you have an opinion, has created this yeah. this perception? Well, I think there's a couple things for it. Number one is the narrative where people are getting their message is not from the church and from the studies that I'm talking about, but from the wider culture. I mean, you don't see people living together that I'm I can think of in TV shows where you see the damage and the devastation of what it actually costs. That's not the narrative that you hear. So number one is just where people are getting information. I think there's probably a lot of people that are ignorant about it. Um, the other reason is I think there's a lot of people that live together because they've come from broken families and they've seen, I mean, I grew up in the eighties and some people would call the eighties the divorce generation. So there's a lot of people in my generation and millennials who saw their parents get divorced and they live together first because they're actually trying to do the right thing. They want to have a successful marriage, but just don't understand that it's actually in most circumstances going to have the opposite effect. Yeah. Yeah, man. You do I've done <clears throat> I've done marriage counseling as a pastor. I've dealt with I've married couples and been with them before and after and all that and it's just the most important thing in a marriage is the I refuse to quit <laughs> attitude. That divorce is not an option and I, you don't go with these like lists of deal breakers. It's just I'm committed to you. End of story. And cohabitation is based upon that not being true. And that's destructive to the long-term future of that relationship. Yeah. That's right. What about homosexuality? Let's talk about the topic. Um, we'll talk about same-sex marriage in a second. But what about homosexuality would you want to share with us? Well, this is a huge topic. So we could go a range of different directions. One, mm -hmm. I'll tell you this. One of the things I try to do in the book is I try to be uncompromising in terms of what Jesus taught but lead with grace and kindness and understanding. And I've just had enough conversations with young people that when it comes to this topic, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of people looking at the church and saying, you know what, maybe you don't talk about pornography a lot, but you talk about homosexuality a lot. Is there a double standard here? Mm -hmm. So I have a ton of compassion for Christians, non-Christians who are wrestling with this internally. Yeah. And I think they'll find as I approach this that I'm going to talk about Jesus' design for sex, but in a way that I think is life-giving and I think is ultimately respectful to them. So one of the big things yeah. I would say is if you have same-sex attraction, God loves you. God cares about you. Yeah. God has a, a plan for your life, not just to rip off the four spiritual laws. And, you know, so I, one, one of the things I guess I try to do in the book in, is to encourage people is I give examples of people like Christopher Yuan, mm. who has same-sex attraction. I have to get and him on he, for an interview too. Oh, you need to have him on. He's one of my, he's one of my favorite people. He is so articulate. Yeah. And he just says, he goes, look, the narrative about homosexuality is that if your parents become Christians, they will be hateful towards you and kick you out of the house. Yeah. He goes, I was in prison as an atheist, and he got HIV, interestingly enough. He goes, it's when my parents became Christians that they were really able to love me because of the Christian ethic of loving your neighbor. Yeah. And so I, I tell a story in the book and just talk about how he finds ways to have meaningful relationships while he's single. And so I think when people with same-sex attraction understand the biblical teaching— 
and they see the models of Christians who live this out well, it can give them hope. Yeah, I think a lot. Of, there's a lot of <clears throat> hatred or bitterness coming from, at least from the Christian perspective, coming from the world towards us. And I think that from the world's perspective, or even our culture, even many sort of more progressive Christians coming towards the conservative view, that their aggression towards it is, in their minds, a preemptive strike. It's, mm -hmm. it's this is because you're already swinging at me, even if I don't see it yet, I know it's coming. And so we have to kind of be ready to turn the other cheek in those conversations to try to prove our innocence. Um, and that's, I think, what you're concerned about is not just Christian truth, but bridge building to the Christian truth in a culture that is preemptively aggress aggressive <laughs> against those things. And I, I like that. Yeah, I think that's what Jesus did. He showed grace. He showed yeah. kindness, but also didn't compromise truth. Yeah. Okay. Um, Same-sex marriage. Now, you don't use the term gay marriage. I'm going to bring this up because I think this is this is something I think you, you do as well. But you don't use the term gay marriage. You use same-sex marriage. Why is that? I think it's just more clear. There's a lot of ambiguity about what it means to be gay. Is it identity? Is it attraction? Is it behavior? So I would never want to send the message that somebody who has same-sex attraction and uses the term gay could not get married to somebody of the opposite sex and still be God honoring that relationship. Mm -hmm. I have many friends with same-sex attraction that are in opposite sex relationships and has some of its unique challenges. In fact, I interviewed a, uh, a, a young woman by the name of Rachel Gilson on this, and she has same-sex attraction and is in a beautiful relationship. She says, actually having same-sex attraction gave me an advantage in my relationship with my husband because I went in with my eyes wide open of what the unique challenges would be. Mm -hmm. So I saw that interview. I, I remember that. It, it was one of my – it was a great interview. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But she – she helped me think about the term same sex yeah. brings it to the issue of biological sex <clears throat> that we're talking about, not gender identity or some other fashion. Yeah, that's right. And then it, then it becomes has to do with the nature of marriage, not rights of individuals, because it's really not about individual rights here. It's about the nature of marriage. And there's more in your book on that. I recommend you guys check it out. Um, and then the last question, because we're running out of time here, transgender identity, transgender issues. What are some quick things that you think are really important for us to think about on this topic before we uh, sign off today? And you guys, there's a link to Sean's book in the video description as well. You can you can pre-order it now. It's available December 1st, right? Yep. So you guys can pre-order it now, and, um, and, it, and it's meant to be accessible in particular, I think, to younger people. But in my opinion, when you write books for younger people, you write books for all people. Um, everybody, whether they admit it or not, they can easily absorb content that's meant for like a teenager. And so uh, that's why my teaching is good. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> hey, real fast, since you mentioned it, one of the ways, if somebody pre-orders it, we're going to send you an interview. I interviewed Richard Ross, who founded the True Love Waits campaign, my father, Why Wait, and just interviewed James Dobson with a lot of the tough questions people have asked about purity culture mm -hmm. from some of the key voices and yeah. uh, we're sending that to those who uh, pre-ordered, and I think there'll be a lot of interest in that. Eventually, I'll throw it up on my YouTube channel, but for now, it's for those who end up uh, pre-ordering it. As far as transgender, one of the things I try to do is I try to make a distinction with the right away for students that transgenderism is a certain ideology in which certain activists are trying to change the way we think about gender in medicine, in sports, in education, and in media. That transgenderism is an ideology. So 
intersex is a biological phenomena when there's an atypical development of somebody's sexual anatomy. Mm-hmm. Transgender is when there's a lack of kind of lining up between somebody's biological sex and their understanding of their gender identity. Mm-hmm. So if I could put it this way, I'd say transgenderism <clears throat> is ideological. Um, intersex is biological. Transgender is psychological. And I think when we start to understand those clarifications in terms, and then we look scripturally, scripture, I think, says a few things. It says, number one, that God has made us as sexed beings. So God made them male and female. So your skin color might be accidental to who you are, but your biological sex is essential. Second, scripture calls us to live in concordance with our biological sex, that we are called to live out our biological sex. But third, there's not specificity given exactly what that looks like because it can differ across cultures. Mm -hmm. I think we get in a lot of trouble when we confuse what it means biblically to be a man with what some cultural stereotype is to be a man. Mm -hmm. And then there's a young boy who goes, I like art. I like to draw. I want to play music. I don't play football and eat meat and feels like, well, maybe I'm a girl. Which is totally not true. No, yeah. Because David played a harp and he cut off Goliath's head. Like part of the message is just to give people space that we're called to live according to our biological sex, but there's a little more flexibility here than we sometimes given in the church. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much confusion going on. Um on one end we have in our culture, let's tear down gender stereotypes. On another end, there's such an extreme, like the contrast is going way up on gender stereotypes to the point where you're like, if you're this, 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 then you're transgender. You're not just a guy that likes those things. You're actually transgender is kind of the impression some people get. Uh, but then but then the, the whole thing gets complicated because other people, it's not, it doesn't have to do with they're interested in art. They're interested in, you know, more girl stereotype things and they're a boy or vice versa. It's that they have something deeper going on where from an early age they have been thinking, no, I feel like I'm in the wrong body. And, and it's, people are complicated and there aren't these really super easy stamp answers we can put on every scenario. But well, I think what you've done is you've given us some biblical principles that are like, hey, is your biology clear? Then your identity should be clear and you wanna to try to you know, play towards that identity in your life, live it out consistently, yet don't have these strong stereotypes that make that, ridiculous <laughs> and impossible to enjoy art because you're a guy or something. Um, and then on the other hand, to then recognize there's psychological questions that are going on. I don't really know all the answers to those things, but I but I do know that the Christian worldview is putting us more and more at odds with some of the popular thinking here that wants to give um, hormones to kids to try to alter their biology and things like that, that we're going this is definitely inconsistent with our Christian worldview and it's going to cause us problems in our culture, but that's just the way it is. I don't know a way around that except to try to graciously hold fast. Well, I think that's right. I think it's clear that transgenderism is a very different worldview than the Christian story. (laughs) They have different accounts of what it means to be human, different accounts of what's wrong with the world, and different accounts of how we fix it. So according to transgenderism, what's wrong with the world is that we separate reality into male and females in the bathrooms, on driver's license, and sports. 
that's what's wrong with the world. Yeah. But built into the Christian worldview is that God created us male and female. So something's got to give. I don't know what that looks like, but it's actually in the best interest of people to understand the biblical worldview because it's a biblical worldview that sets them free. Mm -hmm. So how we do that, I agree. I don't have all the answers, but as Christians, we have to hold fast. But we have mm -hmm. to be as gracious and kind towards those who are hurting and have a different worldview as we possibly can. Yeah. Yeah, we're not we're, we don't have all the answers of how everything gets solved, but we do have the worldview that isn't going to move or shift or change. Right. And and that I think is 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 in a large part. That is the answer <laughs> is just trying to help people have that biblical Christian worldview, which is why I think this is a, a good book for us to have today. Um, you guys can check it out. Um, Sean, thank you so much for joining. We don't have time to do Q&A stuff because I, I told him it'd be an hour and uh, we're in, we're in, we're an hour. We're actually over. Um, so. Thank you so much, John, for joining. I uh, look forward to having you some other time. Also, tell us real quick about your YouTube channel because you've recently been doing more and more stuff on YouTube, and here we are. That's my primary platform, so tell us about that real quick. Yeah, I, I would say you were one of the key people that really encouraged me to do this. You were like, if you put in some time and some thought, this is a channel, I think, that you could just help some people and encourage them. So huge kudos to you for that, but essentially, uh, actually, in two hours, less than two hours, when I get off, I've got Michael Kona and Gary Habermas coming on, two of the leading resurrection scholars in the world. Because next week, there's a new um, there's a new book coming out on the resurrection, and I'm going to interview the two of them and just ask them what are the best arguments, how is this changing, what is scholarship showing. So each week I do an interview. Next week, William Lane Craig is coming on. I've asked him would he share some kind of untold stories mm. that he hasn't shared publicly, just about his life and about his ministry. So. Yeah. Once a week I do an interview and then I release it maybe one or two kind of short videos each week as well. So I'm not a YouTube rock star like you are, but I'm doing what I can in partnership with our program. It's actually yeah. tied to the apologetics program. <laughs> yeah. And by yeah. I am no rock star. But anyways, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Sean, for joining. I'll probably be watching that live stream today if I have the time because that sounds really interesting. I love Mike Lycona, Gary Habermas's work on the resurrection and uh, good stuff. So thank you so much. Thank you everybody for joining. This is a huge, huge topic. We often pick issues we want to talk about like atheism, apologetic issues, um, certain theology issues. But can I say our attitude and obedience to God in the area of sexual purity, um, gender, marriage, singleness, this is bigger than probably any of those issues for most people. So I hope that you guys will get it right. <laughs> and Sean's book will help us, help us to do that. So thank you.